1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show, the only internet radio show dedicated to giving you real solutions to improve your health. Not only are they real solutions, but they're natural solutions as well, because as you know, the one and only true wealth you have is your health. I'm your host, Dr. Keri Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc, and I'm committed to helping you find the root cause of your health problem, fix the cause with natural treatments so you can feel normal again and live your life to the fullest. Now, today we're talking with Sarah Ballantyne, and this is our third interview together, actually. I'll find the other two interviews and put those in our podcast notes so that you can listen to those. So let me tell you a little bit about Sarah in case you haven't already heard about her. Sarah Ballantyne is the blogger behind the award-winning ThePaleoMom.com site, co-host of the syndicated top-rating The Paleo View podcast, and New York Times best-selling author of The Paleo Approach, The Paleo Approach Cookbook, and The Healing Kitchen. Sarah earned her doctorate degree in medical biophysics at the age of 26, and she spent the next four years doing research on innate immunity and inflammation. After her second daughter was born, she began to experiment with the paleo lifestyle. It had an amazing effect on her health. Over time, she healed herself of a long laundry list of physical complaints, including Hashimoto's, fibromyalgia, IBS, acid reflux, migraines, anxiety, asthma, allergies, eczema, psoriasis, and an autoimmune skin condition called lichen planus. Her passion is for providing straightforward explanations uh, for the science behind the paleo diet and its modifications. Plus, her love of food and cooking and her dedication to her family form the foundations of her blog, her podcast, and her books. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for being my special guest today on this episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show.
2: Thank you so much for having me back. I feel like, like three, three is such a lucky number, right? So I'm like, woohoo, third time's the charm, you know, three wishes, three three's great.
1: Yes, I think it's a very lucky number too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's been a while since we spoke last and our first interview we kind of focused on a paleo diet Mm -hmm. And you gave us some information uh, behind, uh, you know, your background and your story, all of those, you know, your health challenges and your journey. And then in our second interview, we talked, we focused more on the autoimmune paleo diet and how to use that for people who have any kind of autoimmune issue, whether it's uh, Hashimoto's or rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or eczema or psoriasis or whatever it is. And then it, I think it's been a while. It's been a year or so, maybe more. So, can you kind of uh, tell us what you've been working on? Because I know you're a busy lady, and you got all <laughs> kinds of stuff that you're always working on and nerding out on, geeking out on. And then we'll um, we'll get into today's interview
2: so i've really been focused on creating uh, educational resources that help inform day-to-day choices for the average person so um i have a new book that just came out called paleo principles which is um you know it's it's branded under the paleo diet but really it is a deep dive into the medical research to um really help us understand the fundamentals of a healthy diet and lifestyle, as well as the flexibility within that template. So, really trying to understand uh, what are uh, sort of broad overarching principles that we all need to be aware of, where does bioindividuality come into place, and how does somebody sort of self experiment in order to figure out what's optimal for them. Um, so that book uh, has been out for a few months now, and it's, it's, it's really a beast. It's, uh, you know, almost 700 pages. It's a um, sort of all-in-one resource, deep dive into the science, but also lots of practical tips and strategies and over 200 recipes and 20 meal plans and everything sort of all-in-one. And then as a sort of tangent to that, I've started getting into creating online courses um, and really trying to expand the modalities that I'm using to communicate with people. So I've uh, recently launched a course that's focused on the autoimmune uh, paleo diet that we talked about last time on the show, uh, that again, it's sort of, it's designed for all, all my, everything I do is designed for a general audience, even though I do these deep dives into the science, I take the time to explain it to somebody without a science background. And so this course is the same, but it's now this combination of like video and slides and, you know, the... Um, uh, you know, homework and self-discovery exercises and uh, online discussion groups and things like that to be able to really help people thoroughly understand the whys behind recommendations and get away from a, you know, do this, don't do that set of rules as I progress in Um, this sort of uh, health education, health advocacy career, one of the things that I keep hitting against is this inherent um, desire for a lot of people to break rules. And when we have sort of arbitrary rules, we tend not to follow them. So really trying to get away from uh, rule-based descriptions of healthy choices and get into a more broad education surrounding why one choice is better than another to really empower choices. So rather than, oh, I know I should do this, do, oh, I understand what will happen if I choose this and and have that be a a really different sort of self-speak when it comes to making our day-to-day choices.
1: So then let's start there. Let's talk about diet dogma and why rules don't work.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting as I was uh, writing Paleo Principles and I was really trying to um, get away from a lot of the soundbite descriptions of the paleo diet. I was trying to create a resource that would give people the information that they need to uh, respond and rebut to criticisms of the paleo diet. But I was also trying to, you know, sort of correct course a little bit with this book and uh, talk about some things that have traditionally been considered paleo that maybe don't work for a lot of people and some foods that have traditionally been verboten but actually probably do work for a lot of people and try to get away from rules and, uh, you know, here's your list of paleo foods and here's your list of foods to avoid, go. And so I I did a bit of a, a, a research into just the psychology of rules and rule following and there's some really interesting studies that have been done um, even in sort of the diet sphere of if you give people uh, you know plenty of people know that that cake is a junk food that you know cake is is not going to make you healthier and yet if you offer somebody a piece of cake or an apple um, even though everybody knows apple's the better choice about 60 percent of people will choose the piece of cake and so this idea of trying to Um, trying to to get beyond uh, I know I should or I shouldn't because we've got these these amazing very tempting hyper palatable addictive foods that we're trying to lure people away from and it that's a that's a hard sell and yet we sort of know no matter what 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 sort of niche within the alternative health community you belong to we all know that getting away from these super refined highly processed uh very very addictive manufactured foods is the number one thing that most people can do to improve their health so how do you how do you how do you get away from like i know i should choose the apple but the cake's tastier so i'm going to go with the cake like how do you combat that and you know as, as best i can tell the better way to combat that is with information so rather than i know the ap- apples healthier like why and if you if you take a sampling of people and you say okay why is the apple healthier you'll get some responses that will say well you know the cake has more sugar um, or the cake has more fat uh, you might have some people say well the cake's made with eggs and you know some people are still in this sort of 1970s belief that eggs are are terrible um but at the same time, like, what does the apple have that's better? And, and that becomes a harder question. Well, it has fiber, um, quite a lot of fiber. So that's an amazing thing that, that cake that's made with you know white flour is not going to have. It has phytochemicals. Apples are actually one of uh, probably the top uh, food source of antioxidant polyphenols, in, in particular, in the average American diet. Uh, one apple has about 300-300. Milligrams of polyphenols, which is about the same as like half a bottle of olive oil. Like it's it it really is the dominant source of of these important antioxidants for most people. It has a lot more vitamins and minerals. The sugar is going to be a slower burn, so you're going to get less of an insulin spike and less of a blood sugar spike. So we we've got all of these other details that we can sort of add. And when you start to to talk about that, and then you can start talking about, and when your palate is adapted to not eating cake that apple's going to taste sweeter and it's going to feel more like a treat like we can layer on this education to suddenly make it you know uh, our, our logical brains can sort of uh, talk over our emotional brains and go no wait here look at all of this information I've got that's making this apple feel like a more compelling choice and that doesn't mean that Every single person is going to choose the apple every single time, and I think that getting away from dietary dogma also embraces imperfection, but it means that more of us will make the better choice more often, and that, I think, is really how we uh, address all of the sort of crises of of public health that we're we're faced right now.
1: And then can you talk a little bit about self-experimentation and bio-individuality? Because I... I see a lot of patients, at least within my office and my private practice, they come in and and they've been doing the paleo diet or they've been doing the autoimmune paleo diet and they're they're stuck. They're not getting better. And so then, you know, I'm just kind of thinking, well, there must be things within that diet that are working for you. But then there might be some things that are not working for you and that um, it's not just a black a black and white kind of thing it's it's about trying to figure out the nuances for you that particular person yeah
2: so i i think that it's it's we know so we know that there's been genetic genetic adaptation to agriculture so in the last you know five to ten thousand years the human diet has changed dramatically there was a fascinating study published uh, i think early last year that uh took uh uh, g- genetic samples from teeth uh, from uh, sort of Eastern Europe, and they they looked at samples from 6,500 years ago to uh, like 2,000 years ago. So it was through, from before agriculture hit that area of the world up until, um, you know, it was very, very well established. And they looked at points of uh, selective pressure on the genome and they found 12 points of substantial genetic adaptation um, the, the most well understood one was lactase persistence. So this is often used as an example, sort of to counterbalance the paleo soundbite of eating as we're, you know, evolutionarily adapted to eat. There's always this like counter argument of like, well, lactase persistence. Clearly, we've adapted to changes in diet. Um, and what lactase persistence is is prior to milk being part of the human diet. Uh, we had no need to make the lactase enzyme, which breaks down lactose sugar in milk, um, after weaning. So we stopped making it after about the age of five, which is in traditional cultures, the average age of weaning. And when milk got introduced as uh, a food, you know, through animal husbandry, so now we have, you know, dairy cattle or sheep's milk was a more traditional milk source, Uh, We needed to keep producing lactase to keep digesting this milk sugar. Otherwise, it was like everybody had lactose intolerance, which is pretty horrible. And we see, depending on when milk was introduced into uh, certain regions, um, people with a cultural background in those regions will have a different percent or chance of having lactase persistence. So, for example, you see in European descent – you know, 90 to 95% of us have uh, lactase persistence. So only 5 to 10% of us are lactose intolerant. But if you look at some Asian or African descent populations, it almost switches. So only you know, 10% of some of those populations have lactase persistence and 90% are lactose intolerant. But we can see these, these points of adaptation. And one of the things that we see is at each point of adaptation, that's where we start to get high variability because it really depends on, Um, our particular genetic heritage and the traditional diets and because of that we really need to respect that people are differently adapted to different sort of new foods but underlying all of that are these rules that we know are universally true so we know for example there's uh, nutrients in foods that we need enough of for all of the processes in our bodies to function optimally. So, nutrient sufficiency, meaning we get uh, enough of the full complement of essential and non-essential nutrients from our food, becomes a really important criteria for a health-promoting diet. So, we have these, like, underlying rules, but within that, you know, there's a lot of different ways to get a nutrient-sufficient diet. There's a lot of different ways to eat an anti-inflammatory diet. And there's a lot of foods that are going to fall into this influence of genetic adaptation where some people are going to do well with that food and some people aren't. And even if you, you you could get into, you know, what's your cultural heritage? For example, if you're European, you're more likely to do well with grass-fed dairy. Uh, if you have African or Asian descent, you're less likely. But even within that, It's really tough to determine if somebody's going to do well with that food without giving them the tools to self-experiment, which means elimination and challenge protocols. So what I've done in Paleo Principles and, and the way that I've gone in a lot of my public speaking and discussions on this topic is we've got these foods that we sort of universally know are uh, health-promoting foods, so the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet, and that doesn't mean you can't develop an allergy or a sensitivity to those foods. There's certainly people those foods will not work for, or at least some of them, um, but we've got this sort of collection of really health-promoting foods that we know have very few problematic compounds in them and tons of nutrients. We have this collection of foods that are really just empty calories, um, even though they're um, you know, you know, it could be called whole foods, like whole grains really don't have a lot of nutrition. Those aren't going to add to most people's diets and they have more inflammatory compounds. So they're not going to work for a lot of people. And then we have this range of foods in between that people are going to be more sensitive to in terms of whether or not that food works for them or doesn't. And so let's respect that you know, if there's, there's a difference between different people in terms of how their bodies are going to respond to, especially these middle ground foods, but really anything on the spectrum. And the way that we really determine if a food is working for us is by cutting it out for two to four weeks, that provides time for the body to down regulate any uh, adaptive mechanisms. So for example, if a food is really disrupting our gut barriers, um, our Mucus-producing cells in our guts will produce more mucus when that food is no longer in our diet. Those cells don't need to produce excess mucus. Mucus production goes down, and then when we challenge that food, meaning we try a little bit to to see how it goes, well, we don't have that adaptation of extra mucus anymore. So the reaction is going to be magnified, and it's it's not um, elimination challenge doesn't create food sensitivities, food reactions, but it unmasks them. So it allows us to see something that was happening uh, all the time before. And it really only takes a, a couple of weeks of cutting a food um, out of our diet completely. And then we just try a little bit of it. There's there's some, you know, really great protocols for uh, sort of systematically testing these foods, which I definitely recommend when we're talking about suspecting multiple foods as being the culprit Um, but we can sort of challenge that food to try out that food see how it works for us and and typically that protocol it it really is the gold standard for identifying food sensitivities even allergies like there's no testing that uh, for food allergies or food intolerances that can detect every way that we can respond to a food and even detecting something like an allergy there's quite a high false positive and quite a high false negative rate with those testings. So this becomes, even for an allergist, this becomes the, and now we we verify these results with an elimination and challenge protocol. Uh, we can do that by, even though we're bypassing the testing, just by saying, hey, these foods are more likely to be culprits. Let me try cutting them out and let me try systematically adding them back in one at a time. And when we empower people with that um, information, like here's, you know, why are these foods in the middle? Why might they work for you but not maybe won't work for you? And then here's how you figure it out for yourself. You really give people the tools to understand their body. And when people understand their bodies better, then all of a sudden you have a different dialogue when it comes to cake versus apple because you you not only have that, Intellectual. The apples got more antioxidants and more fiber, but you have the and I feel crummy when I eat cake to sort of layer on top of it, and it becomes a really, really empowering amount of information for people to live their lives by.
1: So, although you were initially talking about um, genetics behind our, you know, body's ability to eat certain foods or not eat certain foods, there's no genetic test. To do for any of this, and, right. and as you say, with um, food sensitivity testing, there are an umpteen number of ways that the immune system can have a reaction to a food, mm-hmm. and that's why running food sensitivity like blood panels are they're really tricky. I mean, sometimes there's things that come back and they're true, and sometimes false, and and it's an expense. And so, it can be a good
2: starting place for some people. But yeah, you're right. It just all of those results need to be taken with a pretty big grain of salt.
1: And so really the moral of the story is it still boils down to eliminating the food and then doing a challenge. Correct.
2: Um, And I think also there's beyond the genetic factor in terms of how our bodies will respond to a food or a food group or a certain uh, macronutrient proportion there's other things that influence how our bodies respond to food. So for example, a stress level can make a really, really big difference to how our bodies respond to food. Uh, it can ramp up the immune system in sort of a dysfunctional way. So stress is inflammatory. Um, stress also negatively impacts gut barrier integrity. So that means that when the immune system is primed and the gut barrier isn't as good at uh keeping things out of the body that should not get into the body. You can have more food antigens. uh, So that's like uh, not as broken down food proteins get into the body where the immune system is primed and it can learn to respond. You know, it can learn to react to those foods. So you can develop food intolerances just by being very stressed. Uh, Overtraining does something very similar uh inadequate sleep does something very similar and nutrient deficiencies also does something very similar. There's certain nutrient deficiencies that are inflammatory that prime the immune system that uh, they're nutrients that are really important for gut barrier health. And so when you're deficient in sort of vitamin A, vitamin D, zinc, these types of nutrients, you have a leakier gut the immune system is primed, it can't regulate itself as well. And so we have also these other environmental factors that can influence how our individual bodies will respond to a food. And what's really interesting about these other individual factors is that um, they're, they're a moving target, they change. So we can change our diet to be a, you know, gut healing diet that provokes promotes a diverse and healthy gut microbiome uh, that's a very anti-inflammatory and nutrient-dense diet. We can address stress and sleep and activity levels. So we're, you know, promoting gut health, we're regulating our immune systems better, and then suddenly a food that didn't work for us before can start working for us. And, and that sort of is a whole separate uh, system
1: from the genetic influence. So for the listeners out there, you can hear that this is complicated it's not, yes. it's not simple. There's so many different factors. And and I, and I know so many of you are struggling and you've tried these things or you want to, but it's, oh my God, it just seems so daunting. It seems so complicated, so difficult. Um, but uh, Sarah has been working on her her book and her online courses, keeping yourself busy <laughs> yes. to, to help all the people out there that are kind of in this um you know, kind of in this area where they're just like, they don't really know what to do next or they're afraid of what to do next. Sarah, can you talk about um, what are those foods that are kind of in that gray zone that may or may not be creating an issue with somebody's health?
2: So some of the the sort of hot, hot foods, right, and they're, um, it's interesting how these foods really fit You know, I I come from the paleo community, but some of these foods are traditionally considered paleo foods. So, the first one I'm going to mention that it's typically considered paleo, but actually doesn't work for a lot of people as vegetables of the nightshade family. Um, So, that's tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, potatoes, chilies. uh, So, a lot of sort of any spices with heat typically fall into this family And um, they have, you know, it's a really interesting sort of in-between food because they have some really compelling nutrition, right? We're always talking about the lycopene in tomatoes and how great that is. But at the same time, uh, vegetables in this, and they're actually, you know, vegetable-like fruit, so let's, okay, fruit in this family um, are sort of inherently high in a variety of very inflammatory compounds. So just tomatoes by themselves have... Uh, tomato lectin, which is uh, an agglutinin, a type of a type of uh, lectin that is very very good at um, tricking the gut barrier into bringing it into the body and stimulating the immune system. Uh, it has alpha-tomatine, which is a glycoalkaloid. Again, it's very very good at tricking the gut barrier into bringing it inside the body and stimulating the immune system. And both tomato lectin. And alpha-tomatine have been investigated for use in vaccines as adjuvants. So that's the chemical that you add to a vaccine to ramp up our antibody production against whatever that sort of dead virus is in that vaccine. So it's, you know, critical for making vaccines work, but maybe not something we want to get from a garden salad. Um, and it also has a couple of other uh, glycoalkaloids like alpha caconine and a small amount of alpha-solanine. So um, it, it has these very, very inflammatory compounds wrapped up in this quite nutritious little package. And it's, you know, no wonder that tomatoes were considered a a toxic food until a few hundred years ago. Um... They're, you know, Women would be accused of, of being witches if they <laughs> cooked with tomatoes just a few hundred years ago. Um, so this entire family has uh, these compounds that can be problematic. Um, there's a type of steroid in hot peppers. It's, it's responsible for uh, the heat in hot peppers that can uh, really super aggravate any uh, kind of mucus lining. So it can actually... Um, sort of make, you know, if you're consuming enough of it, if you're, or if you're particularly sensitive, it basically uh, damages the entire lining of the digestive tract and just makes it really raw. It's it's like sandpaper almost. And so this whole family um, can be quite inflammatory. Some people are differently sensitive. um, And so it's, it's a food that's sort of, you know, on its surface, when you look at just the nutrients in it, it looks like such a great, choice of foods, I mean, tomatoes are delicious, um, they're traditionally considered paleo, and yet they, they really are quite inflammatory and can uh, sort of exacerbate a chronic illness and autoimmune disease for a lot of people. So that's one sort of group of foods that I would put in this category. Um, I would put a uh, grass-fed dairy, which I already mentioned in this category, um, sort of beyond the lactase persistence issue. Um, There are four proteins in dairy which are uh, highly immunogenic, so we have a very high likelihood of developing uh, allergy or food intolerance against those proteins. Um, And, I mean, a lot of the issues with dairy really only applies to homogenized conventional dairy. So we've got, for example, some links between homogenized uh, conventional dairy fat and cardiovascular disease um so there's some interesting things there that the cancer links with dairy are are not very clear and not at the those science that science needs a lot more information before we can draw some conclusions but a lot of those arguments sort of fall apart as, as soon as you talk about uh sort of an unhomogenized grass-fed dairy where really high in vitamin A and D and K2 and it still mineral rich and it has uh conjugated linoleic acid, which is an amazing cardioprotective, cancer protective, and um uh, uh obesity protective the type of naturally occurring trans fats. It's like a super cool thing. So it, that's another you know, food that has some pros and cons. It has that definitely has a genetic factor in terms of how our bodies respond to it. So I would put that in that category. I would put um All of the top eight allergens would go into this category. Um, Rice definitely goes into this category. So all of the foods that we know can, if you're intolerant to gluten, they have a higher likelihood of the antibodies you make against gluten also binding with the protein in these foods. So that would include rice, dairy, soy. A lot of the gluten-free grains fall into this category. Uh, Quinoa falls into this category. Um, Buckwheat and amaranth fall into this category. So the pseudograins fall into this category as well. Um, Traditionally prepared legumes. So um, legumes, again, have more inflammatory compounds, but they really have a compelling amount of fiber and minerals. And where they're traditionally prepared, so they're soaked for a long period of time and then cooked sort of low and slow for a long period of time, that deactivates a lot of the problematic compounds in legumes. It makes the minerals more easily absorbed by our bodies, that's a food I would put in this in this category as well and that's another one that's not considered traditionally paleo but it can work for a lot of people and there's some compelling nutrition so I usually put food on this uh, sort of scale and I go like what is the nutritional value of this food is it going to provide something valuable to my body and what is in this food that could be potentially problematic is, um, is my body likely to react to this thing based on what I know about my health history? And then I sort of prioritize, okay, so if this food has some compelling nutrition but some problematic compounds, that's a food right there that I'm going to eliminate at first and then challenge and try to determine my individual tolerance. But as you can see, it, it becomes, it's a really complex um, discussion because there's so many There's so many important nutrients in foods that we require awareness of to begin with, but there's also so many potentially problematic compounds in foods that also requires awareness to sort of understand the difference. And this is why um, I really feel that we can't simplify dietary frameworks to uh, a one-size-fits-all, eat this, don't eat this – and instead, we really need to give people this broader education and the tools to figure this out. Like, I, I really don't want it to be intimidating. I want it to be empowering for people.
1: And so, thank you for mentioning all that. And um, as you were speaking there, for the listeners, there's a there's a really great book by Dr. Stephen Gundry called "The Plant Paradox." Sarah, I'm sure you're mm. familiar with that. Yes. And um, and and really, he's also big into the education behind foods and how they're sourced and kind of the ancestry of um, how and why we eat certain things going back, you know, to ancient cultures. And, and so Sarah, one of the things you mentioned was the tomato lectins. So it made me think about, so for the listeners out there, um, you might try a whole tomato and as, you know, elimination and challenge and then react to that. And when it comes to the tomato lectins, the lectins are really in the skin and the seeds. So what if you then try tomato that you've skinned or that you've peeled and you've seeded and you're just eating the flesh, whether or not you still react to that, like it could get that detailed.
2: Can. And, and it can get that detailed for a lot of different foods. Yeah. So um, the glycoalkaloids and potatoes are concentrated in the skin. Uh, There's um, now I'm probably going to get this wrong. So with tomatoes, (laughs) Um, I believe there's more glycoalkaloids in the, it reverses. So green tomatoes versus ripe tomatoes. And I'm I'm struggling to remember which one's which. More uh, glycoalkaloids, I believe, in the green tomatoes and that that drops down as they get riper. And I believe tomato lectin does the opposite. So I believe tomato lectin increases as it gets riper. I might have that backwards. But sometimes it's also a question of, uh, I can have this food when it's fully ripe, but not when it's green, or I can have this food when it's green and not when it's fully ripe. It it can be, um, I, t- I try to encourage people to think of it as a fun discovery process because it does take a long time to do this systematically, um, but then what you have at the end of it is you have this really detailed knowledge about how your body reacts to certain foods, and it may even get as detailed as... I can enjoy this food if I consume it once or twice a month, but if I have it more frequently than that, um, I start to notice joint pain or fatigue or mood issues or headaches, right? We've got all of these foods also that might not, uh, our bodies might respond negatively to, just enough that it makes that food okay for an occasional consumption but not okay for regular consumption we can get that detailed in terms of understanding our own bodies and that becomes this really amazing information that helps us protect our own health for the rest of our lives so it really is an important discovery process for all of us to go through
1: so i like that word discovery because I know that the listeners right now they're kind of like uh what do I do next now I don't really know what to do well you get Sarah's book Paleo Principles (laughs) and you start reading that and you could also read The Plant Paradox but although it seems very um, daunting that I I also think it's very hopeful that if you have um, if you have a negative response to a food there might be ways to to figure out is it that food uh, as its whole, or if you uh, peel it, is it better? If you cook it, is it better? If, is, if it's in season or out of season, is it better? That there is hope as to try and figure out what works for you, the individual. Hmm. Absolutely. So Sarah, then where can our listeners find out more about you and where can it, they get a copy of your book? So
2: Home Central for me is
1: thepaleomom.com, and from there you can
2: link to all of my social media sites, any projects that I'm working on. Uh, All four of my books are sold uh, everywhere, so uh, amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com, bookstores across America, Uh, Costco actually usually has at least one of my books in stock. Um, so it's it's pretty easy to find uh, in, in a bookstore, but you can definitely get it on all the major online retailers as well. And in terms of learning about my um, online courses... The one that's available now is called the Autoimmune Protocol Lecture Series. The next session starts uh, May 14th. There's a few sessions a year, and um, you can also learn that about you know learn about that just by going to thePaleoMom.com and scrolling down the homepage until you see the little banner about the course and clicking on that. It's a really robust education uh, on the diet and lifestyle aspects of the Autoimmune Protocol, but it includes a ton of practical tips and strategies. And um, a lot of, you know, just how to implement this in our homes. It includes information on refinement and troubleshooting. And it's really designed for the full spectrum in terms of experience with the Autoimmune Protocol. So everywhere from the person who's brand new to the idea of diet and lifestyle changes to manage chronic illness, all the way to the person who's been doing the Autoimmune Protocol for years and is just interested, thinks that thinks it's going great or feels like they can refine it. It, it really has a ton of information for that entire spectrum and everybody in between. Um, I've even had uh, caregivers take the course and practitioners who are looking to start their advanced learning on the autoimmune protocol, take the course. It, it really is a, a tremendous resource and students uh, absolutely love it so that again you can find out more about that my books everything i do links to social media at thepaleomom.com
1: so for the listeners out there i'll make sure that all of those resources all of those links are in the podcast notes so that you can easily find all of the great information sarah so much sarah thank you so much for being my special guest today this has been another awesome interview
2: I super appreciate coming back. I hope we're not capping this at three. I hope it's not a three strikes and you're out uh, situation. No. We'll, we'll call Excellent. it
1: three plus to three infinity plus. and beyond. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This wraps up this very special episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show with Sarah Ballantyne. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. And I'd like to invite you back next time for another episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc. Have a great week, everyone.
0: You've been listening to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Kerry Drisga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc.